Well, let me pray first as we come to God's Word. If you don't know me, some of you may not know me. My name's Jason. Uh, I mainly spend time in our uh, Bexley North and Bexley congregations. Uh, So they send you their greetings, I'm sure, if they could voice them through me. Why don't I pray for you and pray for me? Heavenly Father, may we be eager to hear your word. May we be willing to listen to hard teaching. May we be willing to throw away our idolatry and to follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder who's played that dinner party game. There's a dinner party game. You have to pick sort of four people from all of history and then bring them to the dinner table and and have a conversation with them. Who's played that game? Wow, I'm overwhelmed by how many people have played that game. Phil Colgan. This must mean something, Phil. We're old. I think that's what that means. They used to play it. And it was a really hard game to play. When I first became a Christian, people played this game. And I'd always think, well, I'd invite Jesus to the dinner table. And then, who else? Well, it doesn't matter. I could invite Don Bradman. I'd love to have him there. But I wouldn't talk to Don. I'd be too busy talking to Jesus. I'm sure you'd do the same thing. Jesus would have to be there. Now, I've, I've been thinking about this long and hard, as you can imagine. Such an important thing to have a decent dinner party game. I've come up with my own. My dinner party game, which is going to catch on, you're all going to love this, and we're going to bring it back, a sort of retro thing, is this. The rules are in your outline today, if you can want to play it later. First thing, you need a hat. In the hat, you have some famous people's names. You draw out of the hat a famous person, and then you have to decide what question to ask them and why and then everyone else gets to rate you on how you've gone in the game and around you go until everyone's bored and wants to go home that's the game doesn't doesn't sound wonderful but it's going to catch on let me play a round of the game to give you an idea okay here's my hat randomly selecting a name arnold schwarzenegger what would you want to ask arnie what would you want to ask arnie here i'll rate your answer or your question anyone john I give that 10. You know why? That was my joke. I'd ask him the same thing and I'd ask him over and over and over again. Please say, I'll be back. I'll be back. I'll be back. Again, I'll be back. Just keep doing it because it's funny. That's why you'd ask that question. All right. Another one. Uh, here we go. Harrison Ford. What would you ask Harrison Ford if you could ask him one question? Anyone? Any takers? None. No one. Gee, our Bexley North congregation was just flowing with ideas about Harrison Ford. Nothing. This is what I'd ask him. I'd say, Harrison, will you do Star Wars number eight? And you know why I'd ask him? Because Return of the Jedi, when that finished, he said, I will never play that character again. He's an idiot. I wished he died in the movie. Good on you, Harrison. Now, I won't give you any spoilers, but maybe he gets what he wishes for. We'll see. If you haven't seen it, you'll have to watch it. All right, one more. And of course, you have your hat. You have to have Jesus in the hat. If you play this game, you're going to have Jesus in the hat. What one question would you ask Jesus? I'm going to let you think about that. What question would you ask Jesus and why? It's a big question. In fact, it's so important. We're playing not just for sort of dinner party points here. It is so important that we've got two case studies to help us work out what question we'd ask Jesus and why. So if you've got your Bibles open, make sure they're at Mark chapter 10 so you can follow along. 
Let's look at two case studies of questions that you could ask Jesus and the why behind them. So case study number one. A rich man, in verse 17, comes and he kneels before Jesus and he asks, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a great question, isn't it, to ask Jesus. If you cast your mind over Mark's gospel, he's the man to ask. Back in chapter 1 of Mark's gospel, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. Great person to ask that kind of question ever since he said that. Everyone else is trying to work out, what do you mean, Jesus? And so we have the Pharisees coming to Jesus over and over again, testing what he's saying against their, their word of God and against their laws. And they're wondering what he's up to. We've got crowds coming along to look at him, to hear his teaching about what is the kingdom of God like and to listen and to see his miracles. And then we have those closest to Jesus, his disciples, who just last week and the week before were wondering what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. So he is the right man to ask this question of. Why does this man ask the question? I think he actually wants to know. Uh, This isn't a test like we expect with the Pharisees coming along. This man wants to know. Jesus has shown himself worthy of answering this kind of question, this most important question of all questions. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus responds like he often does with a challenge. Verse 18, why do you call me good? No one's good but one God. See, that's the real truth. We've seen it. The truth about humanity is there are no rich young rulers, there are no top blokes, there are no BFFs, there are no teenagers who walk grandmothers across the road. There is no one who is good. No one who is perfect. But the one God is perfect. Now, of course, this man comes and asks the one God, the person Jesus is God in the world. But he doesn't really know that he's asking the one God at this point. So Jesus presses on. Well, you know the commandments, don't you? Of course, he's going to say, yes, I do. I'm a Jewish man. I know the commandments. I've learned them since I was young. I've kept them, in fact, since my youth, he says in verse 20. Now, that sounds really arrogant, doesn't it? I've kept them all since I was in my youth. I wouldn't dare say that. But he's not big noting when he says it. Uh, He genuinely believes he has made every effort to keep the commands. Uh, I think too often the preachers will preach this as though he's duplicitous, as though this man is sort of out to trick Jesus or something. Uh, No, he is genuine. He honestly thinks that he has done good, that he has kept the commands. And that's why Jesus loves him for it, we read there with Mark. But this man has made what I think is the classic human error. Uh, Deep down, deep down in his heart of hearts, he thinks that he is good in what he does. And I reckon if we're honest, don't you? Don't you deep down in your heart of hearts think you're good? Don't we deep down think that if God looks deeply into your soul, there is something about you that is worthy of him? Maybe God is just a little bit impressed by you and by me. Maybe it's my genuineness. Maybe it's my love for others. Maybe it's my faithfulness in service. Maybe it's my moral upright character. We all fall into the trap. And this is the deep deception of sin that we see in this man. We deceive ourselves into thinking, I'm not that bad. Because we play the game of comparisons, don't we? We compare it. 
well, I'm not God, but I'm no murderer. I'm no adulterer. Uh, I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't steal. I'm pretty good. I'm up the God end of the spectrum. So Jesus kind of allows us to entertain this idea. Because I think he knows and we know we're a lot more like this rich man than we'd like to admit. So scan the list of commandments. You know the commandments. Scan the list of commandments. Verse 19. If these are the tests for eternal life, are some of you feeling pretty good at the moment? You could almost keep these, couldn't you? This list of commands. Most of us get pretty good marks. Some of you might be absolutely freaking out at this point because you haven't. But this list of commands about treating others well makes you feel pretty good. I'm up here. I'm on the God end of the spectrum, not way down here. But it's not those commandments that should be worrying us here. Did you notice there are a few that were missing? Just a few. Just a few important commands. Uh, We got the hint in verse 18. What good can I do to inherit eternal life? Nothing. There is nothing I can do that is good because only God is good. I can't impress the good God because he's the only good God. That's actually the first commandment. He is the one God, the perfect God. And because he is good, it reminds us straight away of the second commandment. Do not commit idolatry. Why would you? There is one true God who is righteous and perfect. Why would you chase after everyone else? That's not righteous and not perfect and much less than the one true God. And with this, with with what Jesus has sort of left unsaid to the man, he exposes the man's heart. Uh, In fact, he exposes it and then he just puts it out there in verse 21. He says, you lack one thing. So go, sell all you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But he was stunned, we read, at this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. This sincere man went away sad because money was the one God he had to follow. He had to follow that God. Idolatry was lurking in his heart, and he wasn't prepared to abandon this false God to follow Jesus. That's pretty black and white, isn't it? It doesn't get much more black and white. We can't be good enough for God. And so trade in your false gods and follow Jesus. Trade in your false gods, follow Jesus. That's how we have eternal life. Now that seems really, really simple. How easy is that? Follow Jesus. And yet, isn't it hard? Isn't it hard? Because it's what we worship. Not whether we can impress God by what we have, but what we do, what we worship. And I reckon the man, he went home regretting that he ever asked the question, didn't he? If he was playing the dinner party game, he thought, I should never have gone to Jesus with this game because it's serious business. And he worked out in his heart, he wasn't prepared to follow Jesus. Now, if you're someone who's been sort of hanging around church for a while, learning about Jesus, coming with us in Mark's gospel, if you find Jesus intriguing and you haven't put your trust in him yet, The stakes are getting higher and higher and higher every week. So I want to plead with you to follow Jesus. The man couldn't do it because Jesus wasn't the most important thing. Can you? Can you trust Jesus and follow him? That's what you must do to inherit eternal life. Trust him and follow him. 
If you're someone who already follows Jesus, that's wonderful. It's, it's great to meet with believers and followers of Jesus. We need to take this man as a warning. See, this man was a Jewish man. This man was an insider. This man from the outside looked like he was one of God's people. He was even a good man, a wealthy man. And yet he was self-deceived. Doesn't that scare you just a little bit? He was self-deceived. And I'm interested in verse 19 that Jesus kind of he slips in a fake commandment, a little fakey. It, it's, not, it's not that it's wrong, but it's not on its own a commandment. It's sort of like a compound commandment. Uh, do not defraud, which I think is probably a combination of don't steal and don't lie and maybe a little bit of don't covet. He puts that into the list of commandments as he lists them out. I think Jesus included it to prick this man's conscience, his mind about his particular sin. Uh, This sin that meant that his money came at the expense of other people. He defrauded other people. And in fact, it was quite common in the ancient world for that to happen, to build your wealth at the expense of others. And he couldn't even tell. And all those commands were about how you treat others. And he couldn't even tell. We can sometimes be like him, can't we? Just a little bit. Where it takes someone to point out your blind spots, the idolatry that's in your heart. Uh, I kind of wonder what question Jesus would ask me. If I went to him and said, oh, I'm going to ask Jesus a question, he'd just turn it around and say, actually, no, here's a question for you. What would he ask me that would expose the sin in my heart, I wonder? It's so easy to deceive ourselves to follow false gods and think that they are the true God. It's worth pondering in your own heart. Is it true of you? Are there gods dragging you away from Jesus? And you can kind of tell by what you do. Your actions prove the gods that you're following. Do your actions suggest that you bow down and serve money like this man? Does the way you spend your time, do you prioritize church, Wednesday nights for gospel teams, overwork because that matters more than the money that you'll make. You'll know. Do you bow your knee to your own pride, your own vanity? And you know how this works out. On Facebook, do you cultivate your appearance to the world? Do you plan your public profile, your photos, so that you look wonderful, worshipping your own image? Aren't I wonderful? And everyone else will admit it. Do you worship food and drink? I mean, this is the age of MasterChef. We're encouraged to do it. So many people do. Have you gone down that path, idolizing food and drink? Do you kneel before the false god of sexual fulfillment, thinking that if I can just get another fix of something on the internet or another fix with my boyfriend or my girlfriend, do you praise yourself for your religious piety? I come to church. I go to gospel teams. I'm there first and I'm home last. I must be good enough for God. We need to guard against that, don't we? That drags us away from following Jesus and says, I'm actually really cool and important and at the center. Well, that's the first case study. And the man goes away sad. The disciples at this point are sort of scratching their head and watching what's going on. And Jesus says to them, verse 23, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And that shocks them. It just shocks them. And that gives rise to our second case study. They now have their own question. Who can be saved, they're wondering. If that rich man can't be saved with all that he has, who can be saved? 
Now, they ask that question because they are thinking in a different way than we think. Uh, They're thinking that if you are blessed by God, if you have material wealth, it must be because you're good. You know, if you lined up for heaven, you'd have this long line and at the front door are all the people God loves the most and he'll bless them in this world as well as the next. That's what they're kind of thinking. It wasn't uncommon in their world. But it's based off a misunderstanding and that's what case study two shows as Jesus corrects them. So he starts out verse 25 and he says, the values of the kingdom are not those of this world. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, it's impossible, all right? It's impossible. I don't know if you like me, sometimes I sew. You wouldn't believe it, would you? But sometimes I do. And you get the thread and you lick it and you stick it through that tiny little hole and it doesn't go through and then you pull it through and it splits and it's all messy. Imagine a camel. Lick that, stick that through. That's not going to work, right? It's impossible. And it's a beautiful image. I love the image of the camel. It sticks in your head. It's impossible. Wealth is a particularly deceptive false god. The wealthy, the rich, won't have a chance of getting into the kingdom of heaven. Now that should scare the pants off us because we are amongst the richest people in the world today, living in a time which is one of the richest times in all of history and the rich people can't get in the kingdom of heaven. Are you worried? Fortunately, verse 27, though with men it is impossible, not with God. Because all things are possible with God. Salvation is God's work. That's the point. If a rich man is saved, it is the miraculous work of God. It's not by virtue of what he has or what he's done. It's the miraculous work of God. In fact, every time an idolater, all of us, are saved, it is a miracle. And as I look around, I think it's even more miraculous for some of you that you are saved. It's amazing how far God has brought you. Peter, he gets that message loud and clear, but then he goes too far, like Peter is wont to do. He says, oh no, verse 28, look, we've left everything and followed you. He's worried about his salvation at this point. And I love how Mark sort of interrupts it and says, no, 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 Jesus, Peter begins to say it, but Jesus stops him and he wants to comfort him because he can see where Peter is going with this. He interrupts him and he says, I assure you, verse 29, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father, children or fields because of me and the gospel who will not receive 100 times more now at this time. Houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. These are meant to be great comforting words and I'm sure that Peter heard them as such. Follow me. And you'll have much in this life. And you'll have eternity with me. Very comforting. And yet, sadly, these words have been twisted more than just about any other words that you'll find in the New Testament. And maybe you've seen it, those televangelists, or maybe you've heard a preacher say something along the lines of, become a Christian and you'll be blessed. You'll live the victorious life. Uh, Give money to church and you'll get 10,000% interest rate. A hundred times what you put in. Just become a Christian. Just dial up and use your credit card and put some money down. It'll be wonderful. That is a a terrible thing that has happened. And it's not what Jesus means here. He didn't just warn us all about the dangers of wealth to say, right, become a Christian and you can have as much money as you want. 
It's crazy that we've gotten to this point. What does he actually promise for those who follow him? Did you see it? He says, first, you need to leave behind the things of this world. Your houses, your brothers, your sisters, your moms, your dads, your children, your fields. Because following Jesus is a costly exercise. It's going to cost your relationships. And if you haven't grown up in a Christian family and you've become a Christian, you will know that. You will feel that every single day. And if you are somebody in your workplace who lets people know that you're a Christian, you will feel the cost of it relationally. And following Jesus costs in worldly gain. Uh, In moments of my weakness, I, I have to admit, sometimes I'm tempted to say, wow, all this money I've given for the sake of the gospel, add that up over 20 years. Imagine what I could buy if I didn't give it. There's the idolatry creeping into my heart. If I do it, I'm sure some of you do it as well. It's terrible that we would think like this, that we would be satisfied with using our money for things of this world instead of the eternal kingdom. Being a Christian costs. It may mean for you that you will never own a house. The Australian dream is not your dream. It may mean that you'll rent your entire life. It may mean you live in a tiny little apartment with three kids stuck in one room. Wouldn't that be terrible for the gospel? Maybe you'll never have your own business. Maybe you'll never be the kingpin at work, get to the top. Maybe it's too busy to do that and you'd rather be involved in your church life. Let me speak to you if you are younger. If you're on the younger end of the spectrum, if at the moment you think, oh, I'm not really tempted with money. Mum and dad pay the bills. It's fine. I live at home. Money comes, goes. It's no worries. Let me speak to you. It gets harder. The more money you have, the more temptation comes the more you're tempted to worship money and follow that path and take that job and get that house which means that you won't be in church in 10 years time money's not a great thing the older you get when you get to middle age it tempts you you're also tempted to idolize your kids as you get older you don't have kids at the moment let me tell you down the track you'll be tempted to idolize your kids to give them every opportunity that everyone else's kids is going to have You couldn't possibly let little Johnny not play three musical instruments and do two sports and have five other hobbies and 23 friends and also have a social life. It'd be terrible to deny them that right. That's where it goes. It will cost because you'll have to raise your child to know and love the Lord and you'll say, no, 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 one musical instrument will do you and you can go to youth group. That'll be wonderful for you. And we can read the Bible at the dinner table together. And if you're just starting out on life, Don't be deceived that money will solve your problems. If you work it out now, it will be much easier. If you wait till later when you've got a bank account full of money and go, oh, what can I buy myself? Every time we make a decision, we have to make one that says, I follow Jesus. That's my decision. I follow Jesus. Is this something that a follower of Jesus would do? So following Jesus costs money, relationships, time, time at times i'm tempted to think about the time i invest don't you invest a lot of time you go to bible study you go to church you have friends you're trying to win for the gospel you're doing all these things all that time add that time up imagine how much better version of yourself you'd be if you invested that in yourself it's a temptation to think that what we do is actually somehow less 
that I just want to get home so I can watch the movie tonight or the cricket. I just want to know what the result is. The cricket is on and I'm even taping it and leaving it and waiting it till later. Don't tell me the result and don't look it up on your phone. You're tempted. Time becomes one of those things. Maybe for you it'll be, well, I won't be able to do the master's degree because there is no point. That's investing in myself and not in the kingdom. Maybe for you it'll mean don't buy the family holiday house because you'll be away every second weekend at the holiday house looking after it instead of church. Maybe for you, you'll have to abandon the hobbies that most fascinate you because when you're fascinated, you can't be bothered doing anything else. Following Jesus costs in real ways, tangible ways. Every time we make a decision, are you following Jesus? But Jesus also says there are gains. We often go straight over top of the costs and go to the gains. There are costs, but there are gains. Verse 29, those who give up houses, brothers or sisters, mother, father, children or fields, costs, because of the gospel, will receive a hundred times more in this age. Wow, a hundred times more. That's what we want to hear. So what is it? A hundred times more of what? Well, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and fields and persecutions. What's that doing in the list? What we gain in Jesus is not some increase in personal wealth. Uh, not an increase in your ability to be wonderful in the world. It's an increase in corporate wealth and relationships. Uh, the gospel draws all of us in here to a church. That's what we are. The gospel draw us together in Jesus. Your church is your family. Now, that's a radical way of thinking. And, and people who have been Christian for a long time still sometimes don't get that. They don't think, this is my church. This is my family. I'm committed to them like I would be any family member. When you get that about church, you realize you don't come here to just have a connection with God. You come here to serve other people. Church is your family in Christ, which means when churches don't welcome outsiders, when they don't get to know each other inside, when they don't meet to encourage one another, we are robbing one another of the great gains we have when we are Christians. Notice how verse 28 says, you lose your father... But then it goes on to say you don't get any more fathers. That's because we are a family. We have one father. The one God is our father. He joins us together. Uh, Similarly, our gain in fields, in possessions, it's not individualistic. It's corporate. Together, like a family, Jesus imagines that we will use our possessions for the sake of the gospel and one another. Every church member's home is like a family home to everybody else. It's a scary thought. And Jesus, I don't think, is demanding we become socialists. Instantly sell all your stuff and give it to church. Though if you want to do that, that is not crazy. Money is easy to come by. That kind of generosity is wonderful. Uh, on Friday uh, morning, Howard and Chi, they got up at 5am on Friday morning, they packed up all their house and they went off to Melbourne to CMS training in Melbourne, the newbies. If you, if you don't know them, they're our missionaries, New Link missionaries, Uh, that have come from our own church. In the last two weeks, I've watched them pack up their life. They've had one car boot to fit their life into. That means everything they've owned, everything they've loved, they've just chucked it out. Howard's chucked out his 21st birthday presents. She's chucked out the only possession she had growing up in the Philippines with nothing. And there's been tears and it's been sad. But it's for the sake of the gospel. They've given up the world to go to proclaim the gospel in the Philippines. Yet I would say the newbies are wonderfully rich, and so would they. 
because they have gained so much more. They have gained brothers and sisters like you wouldn't believe. Just our church, hundreds of brothers and sisters in Christ. People who have said, we will support you. We'll make sure you get food. We'll pray for you. We'll be with you as partners in the gospel. They've given up everything and yet they have still gained. And they praise God for us. They sent an email today to me to say, how did church go? We really missed our church family. We wish we could have been there. Were these people there? It's wonderful. They see us as a family. Christians are richly blessed in this age. But it's not in personal gain. It's corporate family gain. And Jesus keeps this perspective for us. At the end of verse 30, following Jesus will come with earthly persecutions. For years, we preachers have been trying to soften this, I think, buying into the individualism of our age. And we've said, some of you will suffer for the gospel. That's true, but not everyone's called to suffer for the gospel. Others will do other things. We've just given in to individualism. This isn't individualism. This is corporate. We are in a family. If one suffers, all suffer. And I know for a fact, at least one of you suffers. Many more do. We all suffer. We are all being persecuted for following Jesus. And we're not even surprised because he was persecuted. Jesus wants us to think corporately, to share in each other's persecutions. Uh, If you are not being personally persecuted, there's probably a case for you to get out there more. Uh, to get to know your friends and tell them about what you do going to church, who Jesus is and how important he is in your life. Uh, There's probably a case to think about if you have friends. There's probably a case to say, am I looking for opportunities to tell people about Jesus? If no one persecutes you and you're doing all that, praise God. That's a wonderful experience for you to have. But many are being persecuted and church is where we band together where we come together every week to refresh under God's word, to encourage one another, to push on. Uh, Always remember a wise Christian saying to me, the greatest joy in life is going to church because it's the one time in the week when people don't pick on you for being a Christian. It's the one time in the week when you can get together with your family, be refreshed, and then go out and do it all over again. That's what church is about, refreshing us for this spiritual battle that this age is for us. May we not misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. Because if we do, we rob each other of the joy. If none of us care about persecution, yet one person is proclaiming Jesus all the time and being persecuted and we don't encourage them, we are robbing them of the joy it is to be a Christian in a church family. And may we never be tempted to miss the truth that we don't live for this age. We persevere through this age. We trust in the Lord and await eagerly his return. That's what following Jesus is actually about. Well, let me draw it together. I started with my party game. It's going to be a great game. You're all going to love it. It's a gift to you. Share it widely. I don't want any recognition for my wonderful new game. But we focused on two people and their questions of Jesus in particular. Their reasons behind. But I want to say... It's actually more important at this point to remember that one day Jesus will play my game. He will have a hat. And in that hat, he'll have every single name of every person in all of history. And he'll draw them out. And he'll say to you, one after the other, why should you be saved? And if you've learned from the rich man that it's by what you do and how impressive you are, you'll go away sad. That is the truth. But if you've turned your back on the world 
to follow Jesus, then you will be with him in eternal life. That's wonderful news. Salvation is for those who throw off the gods of this world to simply follow Jesus. Uh, Everyone's going to look at you, you're going to be persecuted, and they're going to think you're at the back of the line for heaven because you're an idiot. You follow Jesus, whereas everyone else is out there making better things for themselves. But the last verse is wonderful. Verse 31. Those who are first in this world will be last, and the last in this world will be first. Jesus is going to look at the line that we all make in this world. He's going to go down the back. He's going to look for those who followed Jesus. May we be people who followed him down at the back of the line, waiting for eternal life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for our Lord and our Saviour. We thank you that he is worthy to save us and worthy of all praise. May we follow him. We are weak and tempted, and so we pray for your help by your spirit to turn our back on the things of this world that want us to worship them and instead to follow you. And we ask this in your great son's name. Amen.